6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Song of Songs, chapter 2, verse 8, through 5, verse 1. See, both need to be dealt with. Both need to be scheduled activities to provide for quality time for the love relationship. Marriage is something you invest in. Marriage is something you maintain. This is something, it isn't an event that occurs on a day of celebration. No, it's a commitment through life to continue to deal with and invest in. And it goes through phases, and they get richer and richer if handled properly. This is especially difficult for the self-employed, as I mentioned, in those in ministry. Because there's, the demands have little to do with boundaries. And that goes for the girls too, by the way, and the housework. That also can never, is never really finished. Among the biggest rivals to the husband are the children. And, and if you think I'm kidding, go home tonight, open the icebox, the refrigerator, and see what's lined up there. You'll find the favorite things of the kids. Do you find the favorite things of the husband? Check it out yourself. Now, part of the solution to all this, of course, is that maybe the tailoring of your career goals. Careers are important, but they can also be gods we worship. We could be careful about that. Tailoring the career goals so they include the family and the marriage. And we deal with some of that in the Vortex Strategies series if you want to go to some practical applications. Okay, courtship and marriage. We had the first idol in the first session. And uh, we had those first three reflections, you may recall, in the earlier session. We've just gone through the second idol, the springtime visit. And we're now going to move to the second reflection of it, the fifth reflection in total, of uh, dreams of separation. She has a recurring dream that's illuminating here in chapter, opening chapter 3, verse 1. After her lover leaves, she recalls a recurring dream during the winter months when she was separated from him. This is going to deal with the the pain of separation, his absence, and the uncertainties that get associated with that. She says in verse 1, By night on my bed I sought him whom my soul loveth. I sought him, but I found him not. Now the word night is in the plural, which implies what she's going to be describing here is a recurring dream she has. And uh, nothing is more frightening than to lose the sense of your Lord's presence, both in her sense, but also that sense that we experience. Remember, David said, thou, hast, thou didst hide thy face, and I was troubled in Psalm 30. So even David in his relationship uh, had that experience. And uh, sometimes this kind of thing is admonitory. It can maybe love's way of bringing the soul to realization of something cherished or allowed the that uh, grieves the Holy Spirit of God in, in, a, in a spiritual sense. Or it may be the testing of faith to see whether one can trust in the dark as well as in the light. That's true of a marriage and that's true of our spiritual walk. And uh, sometimes these things are deliberate testings. And uh, 
as Rutherford said, but flowers need night's cool sweetness, the moonlight and the dew. So Christ from one who loved him, his presence oft withdrew. That may surprise us, but it's a very real thing. Now, <laughs> what do a skydiver and a surfer have in common? There are some invitations you can't postpone. When it's time to move, you need to respond or miss out. And that's going to be uh, the response here. She says, I will rise now and go about the city, in the streets and in the broadways. I will seek him whom my soul loveth. I sought him, but I found him not. So she's starting to experience that anxiety of his uh, uh, lack of uh, presence. The pain of absence. Is he playing hard to get? Or is he teaching us not to take him for granted? Those are the thoughts running through her mind. The watchmen that go out the city found me, to whom I said, saw ye him whom my soul loveth. The watchmen are the ones guarding the city, and she runs into the, the night police, so to speak, asks for help. Have you seen him? Are they of any help? No. She must find him herself. She no sooner inquires of his whereabouts when she spots him. Just like Jeremiah said, and ye shall seek me and find me when ye shall search for me with all your heart. So that's true of the bridegroom here. It's also true of our bridegroom, and we'll get to that a couple of sessions later when we look more carefully at the allegorical implications of this love poem. She says in verse 4, I was but a little that I passed from them, but I found him whom my soul loveth. I held him and would not let him go until I had brought him into my mother's house and into the chamber of her that conceived me. See, in her mind, her mother's home was a place of security. So in her dream, when she finally finds him, she gets a grip on him and brings, it, brings him to her place of security. So the dream that began as a nightmare ends happily in the first opportunity of privacy and security. Even though it's just a dream, it reflects the long winter of separation. I think that's the role of the, the, this reflection within this opera. Remember, it is an opera. And so this passage ends with the same words that we encountered back in chapter 2, verse 7. It's a refrain that occurs three times in the passage. She says to the general social milieu, the daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the rose and by the hinds of the field, that ye stir not up nor awake my love till he please. Now this may sound strange in the translation, but what she's the key thought here is that arousal should not occur until it can be satisfied. God has such a high view of sex that he does not want it to be cheapened by lust. So you're going to find it very black and white, if you will. In the marriage, it's the highest ecstasy. Outside the marriage, it's sin. It's a very, very crisp boundary that we're dealing with here. So to arouse in the absence of a legitimate opportunity for fulfillment is dangerous because it'll either result in frustration or worse, fornication. The rest of the chapter is of an entirely different character. It sets forth the truth of union rather than the restored communion. So just to reflect on, just to reflect on Reflection 5, Shulamit recounts a recurring dream in which she is separated from Solomon and cannot find him. The long winter of separation in the previous reflection created a longing giving rise to these dreams. In her dream, she sees herself looking for him but is unable to find him. She begins to walk around the city looking for him. It's not able, doesn't get any help. And uh, in the dream, there is no response from the watchman or anybody helping her. Just as she passes them, she finds him. 
fortunately, seizing him tightly, refusing to let him go, she hangs on to him until she's brought him into her mother's house, which is her place of security. And that reflection ends with an adjuration to the daughters of Jerusalem. The daughter of Jerusalem are this chorus uh, in the opera that represents the general townsfolk, the, the public, their social milieu. And uh, so she has an adjuration to the daughters of Jerusalem against the arousal of sexual passion unless it can be satisfied. And obviously it can't be yet because they're not married yet. But this time being in the context of courtship rather than marriage, this was intended to avoid fornication. The previous time being in the context of marriage, it meant to avoid frustration. So while the marriage bond, uh, in, within the marriage bond, sexual passion must not be aroused unless it can also be satisfied, lest it lead to frustration. Outside the marriage bond, it can lead to fornication. Any kind of activity that tends to arouse the passions must be avoided by the courting couple because it's dangerous territory until the marriage takes place. Sex is a beautiful thing, and the wedding should mark the climax of the courtship and the commencement of sexual life together. Foreplay in the form of petting must not be practiced because this leads to sexual arousal that cannot at this time be satisfied. So in that sense, petting is dangerous. So, first idol, we've had the second idol. We've just gone through. Now we hit the third idol, and this is the big one. This is the marital union, the reflections on the marital union. It consists of the wedding procession, the sixth reflection, and the wedding night itself, the seventh reflection. In chapter 4, uh, deals with that. So let's move on to the third idol, opening up with the sixth verse of chapter 3. You need to understand there are five steps, typically, in the ancient Jewish marriage. The betrothal, the time when the marriage arrangement for the marriage was contracted. The wedding procession was accomplished when the groom went... See, the groom would go away to build a house, typically an extension of his father's house. And um, when it was accomplished, he would, come, he would either come back to the house of the bride to fetch her, or he would send a wedding party to fetch her to his home, and he would go out to meet her. Then, of course, was the wedding ceremony, where the two are recognized to be husband and wife in a legal sense. And then the wedding feast or banquet, sometimes lasting a whole week, by the way. And that would follow the ceremony. The first night of that was the wedding night, where the married couple became one in the flesh through their first sexual union. And uh, so the wedding procession is the next step. Solomon sends a wedding party from Jerusalem to, uh, to Galilee to fetch the Shulamite for the wedding ceremony in Jerusalem. We're going to see the party returning towards Jerusalem with the bride in their midst. Verse 6. Who is this that cometh out of the wilderness like pillars of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the powders of the merchant? All through this opera, spices and fragrance are used for the atmosphere to, to, uh, to celebrate and exalt. When we see a, uh, a, uh, a movie, we're often not conscious of the music, which is so critical in setting the right mood the, of what's going on, whether it's uh, uh, tension or whether it's uh, whatever. Uh, we, 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 we use music a great deal in our entertainments. In this opera, we're going to constantly see the use of spices of different kinds to raise the atmosphere, if you will. So we have perfumed with myrrh and frankincense and all the powders of merchant. Now, myrrh was an ingredient in the holy oil in Exodus 30. 
Frankincense was also an ingredient of the holy incense. These both were used by the priesthood, uh, and the fragrance was very pungent in, in terms of uh, their activities. Royal honors are here being accorded in, with a lavish expenditure. These spices were expensive. They constitute a primary part of their um, um, merchandise and so forth. So the expenditure of spices making smoke and fragrance here. The royal accoutrements are recognized. She has been treated like a queen is the whole flavor here. Behold his bed, which is Solomon's. Three score valiant men are about it and of the valiant of Israel. The bed here is a mita. It's a travel couch or what we might consider the royal litter, if you will. There were 60 men, and these weren't just perfunctories. These were warriors there to protect the, the royal palace guard. Not just window dressing. They're capable warriors, as you'll see here in the next verse. They all hold swords, being expert in war. Every man hath his sword upon his thigh because of fear in the night. So they're there to provide protection, and they're serious about it. And that, in 1 Maccabees 9, we find a similar allusion here. Moving on. King Solomon made himself a chariot of the wood of Lebanon, it says in verse 9. A chariot here, or it's the bed of state, um, it's a bed with a canopy over it, probably of Egyptian design, the wedding bed, if you will, made of cedar in accordance with the decor of the bridal chamber. And uh, he made pillars thereof of silver, the bottom thereof of gold, wow, the covering of it purple, the midst thereof being paved with love, for or by the daughters of Jerusalem. Cushion of purple, adorned with tapestry, procured by the daughters of Jerusalem. Go forth, O ye daughters of Zion, and behold the king Solomon with the crown wherewith his mother crowned him in the day of his espousals and in the day of the gladness of his heart. This is not his royal crown. This is a crown that's presented to him by his mother. This Bathsheba developed this for him. It's an atara. It's not the diadem or Stephanos. It's a atara, the crown a wreath, if you will. Um, it's a wedding crown. This was a custom of ancient Israel, and this was one. This one was made by his mother Bathsheba. But something very interesting you want to pick up on here: this practice of a crown in a marriage was discontinued once the, after after the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. The destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD is a major milestone in the whole history of the nation of Israel. And so today, what they do in a Jewish wedding is they break a wine glass, and that is a part of a Jewish wedding ceremony today. And what most people don't, may not know, that's intended to symbolize the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And... Uh, even on the occasion of a Jew's happiest day, the day of his wedding, Jerusalem must be remembered. That's the flavor. And uh, many people, are, if you've been, or been at or witnessed a Jewish wedding, you know about the bringing of the glass. Many people may not know why do they do that. That's the reason. At this point, the wedding ceremony occurs. The wedding banquet was reflected back in uh, chapter 1, you may recall. Fo the following reflection describes, though, again, in vastly more detail, the wedding night itself. For many people, this is the peak of the entire opera, the peak of the, the program here. The earlier reflection, that was the third reflection of the wedding night, was from the Shulamite. This, which is the seventh reflection, 
is from the groom's point of view. And except for one verse, it is he that's doing all the speaking. And so we're moving into the seventh reflection, the wedding night, chapter 4, verse 1. He begins with a sevenfold praise of her beauty. And I might pause right here to remind you, this passage, the whole book, but certainly this passage, is one of the most uncomfortable one for many, especially pastors trying to teach this from a pulpit. This is one of the reasons that the rabbis didn't let someone read the book, the Song of Songs, unless he was over 30. It is candidly, you cannot escape the fact, it is very sensual, it is very graphic, it is very direct in its way. And uh, just be prepared for that. Uh, we might say this is going to be rated X, if you will. But moving on. Verse 1, Behold, thou art fair, my love. Behold, thou art fair. Thou hast dove's eyes within thy locks. Thy hair is as the flock of goats that appear from Mount Gilead. Now, right away, we begin to realize the idioms that they're using are foreign to our culture and our ears. They're in an agriculture and agrarian economy. Um, they are, uh, their lives were continually confronted with the husbandry issues of different uh, animals and so forth. So their, their idioms of comparison are strange to our ears. Thou hast dove's eyes. I don't think you're going to go home and tell your wife she's got eyes like a dove. She won't know what you're talking about. And uh, uh, hair like a flock of goats, that, that, sounds, that does not sound appealing to us. It was to them. And so we want to get into this here. Four times he's going to declare her fair, that she's very fair, meaning she's without spot. That, by the way, is one of the key messages throughout this whole opera is that he views her as absolutely perfect, that without spot, without blemish. And uh, so, and he says, within thy locks, see, behind the veil is what it really means. It was customary for a bride to be veiled on the wedding night. And that's one of the reasons that prostitutes were veiled when they, did, when they applied their craft, as you may have noticed from some of the Bible stories. The goats in Israel. Syrian goats were mostly black with silken hair. Very attractive hair, strangely enough on a steep slope, giving the appearance of hanging down on the sides of the cliff is the, is the, is the flavor here. As a, your hair is like a flock of goats. We would find that offensive. It's used in a context of a compliment. And he, he's starting working her from top down. Seven statements he's going to make about her, each one in the superlative. And this one's like a flock of goats that appear from Mount Gilead. That's a positive thing in this culture. The slopes of Mount Gilead rising from the Jordan Valley are very bare with a brown, uh, bronze collar. And in that same sense, hair is a woman's glory, we're told in the New Testament. Thy hair is a flock of goats. Hair speaks of two things. It speaks of consecration and it speaks of submission. The Nazarites were not to cut their hair as a sign of their commitment, number six. Remember Samson, same thing. That's why his hair is so important in the career of Samson, because he was a Nazarite. That was a symbol of his commitment. And Paul alluded to the long hair of women as her glory in 1 Corinthians eleven fifteen. Thy teeth are like a flock of sheep that are even shorn. Well, most of us are not familiar with the clean whiteness of a freshly shorn sheep. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep that are even shorn, which came up from the washing whereof every one bear twins, and none is barren among them. 
So her teeth are a matched pair, like matched pearls or something. Sheep washed shorn in white, matched, none missing. A set of pearls half hidden in the mouth is the way he's describing her teeth. These are not idioms that we would probably pick up to emulate in our culture because we're in a different culture. But in their culture, this is the way, this is the most extreme way he could find to communicate these things. And by the way, teeth also speak of our ability to assimilate the truth. And that you start building, you start getting into allegorical issues here then. Thy lips are like a thread of scarlet, and thy speech is comely. Thy temples are like a piece of pomegranate within thy locks. This thread of scarlet should echo Rahab's salvation in the Battle of Jericho. It also should echo, it will echo, the scarlet thread from Genesis chapter 3, God's commitment to a Redeemer, all the way to seeing his vesture and blood in Revelation 19. We're going to deal with some of the allegorical issues separately so we don't break the stride, the the emotional and and, and, and the the portrayal of what we have here in chapter 4 especially. So we're going to deal with that in a subsequent session and get back, we'll double back on some of these allegorical issues and there will be some surprises in that, I believe. And the pomegranate, we don't probably traffic in pomegranates that much. Their redness is tempered with a ruby color. They're mentioned over 30 times in the Bible, used as an indication of rank in the hem of a garment in Exodus 28 and 29. The Levites, you see, in, in their culture, the hem of your garment is where you embroidered your, your rank in the society, your genealogy, your, your role. We, we think of stripes on a sleeve of an airline captain or something. They had their, that all emblazoned on the hem of the garment. And we find pomegranates are an indication of rank on the hem of a garment. They were also emblazoned on the temple. 1 Kings 7, 2 Kings 25, Jeremiah 52. You find these echoes of the pomegranate, a highly venerated symbol. Uh, and uh, is there a temple pun here? We'll talk about that when we get to the allegories. But um, Pomegranate has a circular calyx at the end that looks sort of like a little crown. And a tradition claims that Solomon used it as a model for the one he wore. That's, that's the tradition we have. The leaves are shiny, dark green. Flowers are coral and waxy. The fruits make a syrup called grenadine. Moving on. Thy neck is like the Tower of David built for an armory, whereupon they hang a thousand bucklers, all shields of mighty men. Now, <laughs> this isn't the kind of compliment you might give your wife, but here it was intended to be, having a long neck adorned with ornaments. Shields were often hung on tower walls. And uh, we, from here you can springboard into allegories too with the armor of God and so forth. But moving on here. Solomon made 200 golden targets and 300 golden shields. And they were put in the house of the forest of Lebanon. 1 Kings 10. And they served that served as the royal armory. And it may have been known as the Tower of David. So that may tie to this verse, if you will. These shields were later carried away by Pharaoh Shishak at the time of Rehoboam, Solomon's son, who then replaced him with brass shields for his bodyguard to use. So these were idioms familiar in the, in, back in that day and complementary, although they would sound strange to us, of course. Then he continues, Thy two breasts are like two young rows that are twins, which feed among the lilies. Soft, attracting, stroking. Having described the sevenfold beauty of his bride from top down, eyes, hair, teeth, mouth, temples, neck, breasts, 
he anticipates their first intercourse. Until the day break and the shadows flee away, I will get me to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. This is what in other literature would be called the Mount of Venus. He's approaching the pubic area, if you will. Thou art all fair, my love. There is no spot in thee. He is totally satisfied with his bride. And this is the key message throughout the book. One of the primary purposes of this book is to show you how our shepherd king sees you. Come with me from Lebanon, my spouse, with me from Lebanon. Look from the top of Amana, from the top of Shinir and Hermon, from the lion's den, from the mountains of the leopards, from the peak of whatever, in other words. Travel to, to, travel to ecstatic heights. He's also the God of the second chance, by the way. The first time he said, come, let's go up to the mountains, she put him off and lost the moment. But he comes back and says, let's go for it. And they do. Thou hast ravished my heart, my sister bride. Thou hast ravished my heart with one of thine eyes, with one chain of thy neck. Strange words, sister bride, or spouse. It's, it's bride for the first time in that, uh, in that nomenclature here. The Hebrew word comes from a root which means to pierce through and carries the meaning of that which is brought to completion. Putting the two concepts together, the Hebrew word used for bride refers to one who has reached the goal of her womanly calling, that of becoming a sexual partner to her husband, thus perfectly comp completing herself and him. This is the redoing, really, of the creation of Eve. Eve was taken from the side of Adam. Adam was split in two, in effect, the male and the female, Mr. and Mrs. Adam. And this is the, the uh, reunion of that, in a sense. That's what, that was God's design. And because it's God's design is one reason he treats it so majestically and so strictly because that reunion, that union is holy. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler teaching through the book of Song of Songs. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android App Store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.